Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. I'm Bethany McLean. This is Making a Killing. In this show, I cut through the hype and hand-wringing to reframe the stories you thought you understood and uncover the ones you didn't know were important. Ever since the days of Enron, I've been fascinated by this question. What separates a visionary entrepreneur from a fraudster? Being a visionary requires being able to tune out other people's doubts, to say you're right and everyone else is wrong, to persist through impossible difficulties because you believe your goal is grand and worthy, even a noble pursuit. It might even require lying to non-believers, at least at times. I used to think that the characters at the heart of white-collar fraud or stories of business gone wrong were different. I thought that if you did bad things, then it was because you knowingly set out to do what you knew were bad things. But Enron made me realize that's not always the case. In covering these stories over the last decade or so, I've seen this time and time again. These stories are a mixture of self-delusion, rationalization, ego, and yes, often some greed, venality, and even corruption. But the mixture is the key. And the fraudster, just like the visionary, usually justifies it all in the name of a noble pursuit. Think about Enron. This isn't the story of a company that set out to defraud investors. Rather, CEO Jeff Skilling tried to hide the company's weaknesses because both his ego and the company's survival needed a high stock price, but also because he believed eventually he'd make it all work. And he might have. A business called Enron Broadband was really just Netflix ahead of its time. This is true in so many cases. A business leader thinks if he or she can just get through this bad quarter and not lose investors by telling the truth, it'll all work out in the end. 
And of course, that end justifies the means. Which brings us to Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Holmes was supposed to be a visionary. She wanted to disrupt, reinvent the blood test. She bragged that her company was developing a method for running hundreds of lab tests from a single drop of blood, employing a machine called the Edison that used all sorts of trade secrets to run the tests. She'd say repeatedly that Theranos' goal was basically a religious calling and that she had one existential purpose. But when Theranos failed to develop a machine that could do what she had claimed it could do, the company literally hid that fact, performing tests in what was essentially a secret lab. Even the biggest cynics don't think she set out to commit fraud. So here's my question. When did the visionary become the fraudster? At what point, if ever, did Elizabeth Holmes admit to herself that she was deceiving not only investors, but patients about the quality of their all-important blood work? I'm thrilled to be here now with filmmaker Alex Gibney, who I first met around 15 years ago when he decided to make a documentary out of the book I'd co-authored on Enron. That documentary, The Smartest Guys in the Room, was nominated for an Academy Award in 2006. We lost to the March of the Penguins, a fact that I have still not gotten over. Anyway, Alex has done a ton of other films in the intervening years, from Lance Armstrong to the Dirty Money series he did for Netflix, all of which in some ways address this question of the line between the visionary and the fraudster. Of course, none more so than his recent film about Holmes, which is called The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. Elizabeth Holmes famously named her machine the Edison, and in the movie you make the decision to prominently feature Edison. Let, let's start with the parallels between Elizabeth Holmes and Thomas Edison. He was the first sort of self-styled business superstar, that is to say, businessman as celebrity. And that ended up being very useful to him in terms of expanding his empire and also getting capital, because people were not investing in a machine, they were investing in him. And so that idea of investing in a person kind of starts with Edison, really, in terms of the whole business paradigm. And there's one other element, too, which is that Edison had a vision of where he wanted to get to. But along the way, he cut a lot of corners, and he was pretty deceptive. We can get into the specifics, but he lied to people. Let's just be honest. He lied to people about where he was at, figuring it would all work out in the end when he finally got there. He was the original fake-it-till-you-make-it guy. And he did make it. It did work out for him. It did. I mean, particularly with the incandescent light bulb and obviously with the record player and many other inventions which weren't necessarily his, but he took full credit for. Now we think of him as like, wow, how could he have invented all those things? He didn't. And neither did Elizabeth. But he was the paradigm setter in terms of all of that. So not only in taking credit for ideas that weren't necessarily his, but also in pretending that things were working when they hadn't quite clicked yet in reality. That's absolutely right. So there's been some criticism of your Theranos movie because people say you were soft on Elizabeth because you didn't call it out-and-out out premeditated fraud. But it was interesting. Tyler Schultz, the famed whistleblower in this story, said, does she realize she's lying? I, I, don't, I don't know. And you've said that people who are good at telling a fraudulent story are good because they believe it's true. So what's the line with Elizabeth? Do you think it's as simple as premeditated fraud? No, I don't. But where I, I find it a little odd in terms of the criticism is that I think that the fact that she didn't know that she was crossing lines is not an excuse, really. 
it's actually more bad news than good news. I think it's worse than if she had been a kind of Bernie Madoff-like character because she was able to lie more effectively because she really believed in her mission. And that is the scarier thing here. So her belief was an explanation, but not an excuse. Correct. Does that go back to Edison, too, in a way? I think so. I mean, I think that Edison believed he was going to get there. So what difference did it make if he lied along the way? And when I say he lied, I mean, in the case of the light bulb, he faked demonstrations. The light bulb wouldn't stay on as long as he needed it to. The filaments were melting. So he faked these demonstrations for people. He would always shut the light off just before it blew up in his face. And also he would give reporters stock in his company, you know, as if that wasn't enough of an incentive in order to get them to write good and glowing stories about him. So ultimately he got there, but along the way he was he was dishonest. So there's Elizabeth Holmes giving the famous lawyer David Boyd stock in her company. Yes. And there's Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos with the room called Jurassic Park where they ran the laboratory, the secret room where they ran the laboratory tests on old machines because their much-hyped new machines weren't working yet. So what's the difference between her and Thomas Edison? Is it just luck at the end of the day that he, he was able to make it after faking it and she didn't? Part of it is that, in other words, you could say that if she was working on a new kind of light bulb, maybe that would be more similar to Edison. I think the really problematic part of Elizabeth Holmes is that she was working in the area of medical science. Right. And she was developing lab tests that were going to be used on real people. In fact, were used on real people. And yet the data was notoriously bad. And so she had a double problem. On the one hand, she was defrauding investors, albeit not the public. She was defrauding patients, and, and that was a bridge too far. In other words, if she had spent her whole time using investor money just to keep practicing and keep devising new prototypes and never went to market, I think the judgment on her would be far more kind. So maybe the lesson here is if you're going to be a visionary, do it in a field that doesn't affect people's lives. Yes. So that if you, if you, <laughs> so that if you do have to fake it for a while, maybe that's where the line is, right? It's in the field you choose, not so much in the, in the personality type. Yeah, I think so. Steve Jobs lied. He was a notorious liar in, in some ways. And actually, there are a lot of real similarities with him and Elizabeth Holmes, too, they were both great storytellers, and I think Edison also shared that. The, their ability to tell a compelling tale about their business was terribly important. And does that start with a, the person themselves? You've described Elizabeth that she wanted to be a paradigm shifter. Does that visionary characteristic start with how you define yourself and then lead into how you tell the stories about yourself? Yes. It's like you set yourself a goalpost way out here, not just for your company, but for yourself. This is who I want to be. And Elizabeth wanted to be known as a hugely successful and wealthy business person. And also as an inventor, both those things were terribly important. But because her dad had some experience with NGOs, in addition to a brief career at Enron, she also wanted to do good or to be seen as doing good. So all those things were very important to her. So I think that was who she imagined herself to be. And if things along the way contradicted that, so long as she fixed her gaze on the dream rather than the more grubby reality, everything was fine. 
Isn't that interesting? Because both the visionary and the fraudster in that way of thinking about it have to start off with this larger than life sort of vision of themselves, right? Which isn't a sense of fraud until you've proven it. But the visionary manages to get there and the fraudster fails along the way. That's right. And as Dan Ariely, the behavioral economist, says in the film, we wouldn't want to live in a world where people didn't overpromise. Right. I've thought about that a lot. And even for those of us on the other side of it, that being reflexively cynical is actually as bad as blind belief, right? And you need the, you need romantics on both sides. You need the romantics who are who want to be visionaries, and you need the romantics who are willing to believe in them. Because sometimes you imagine a possibility, and you don't quite know how you're going to get there when you imagine that possibility, but you're determined to get there and convinced that you can. My stepfather, who was a minister, used to say, I love the recklessness of faith. First you drum, and then you grow wings. <laughs> that is wonderful. So I want to try to explore this idea of when it might be that Elizabeth crossed the line in, mm -hmm. in her own mind, by which did her belief in herself ever, ever, ever falter? And so you start off with this original idea that getting poked with a needle was just so horrible that it required a whole new machine where you wouldn't have to do that. She believed in that, right, for sure? I think she did. I mean, but I think that's kind of like projecting her own fears on everybody else. But I do think that she really did have a fear of needles. And she thought, okay, if I have it, a lot of people do, and this will be part of my mission. And she definitely believed initially, but then you think about some of the specifics in the Theranos story. As we touched upon earlier, this idea that there was this room called Jurassic Park where the real testing was going on because the new machines, the Edisons, the weren't dinosaurs. Were, right, testing on the dinosaurs because the new machines weren't working, so they had to do these tests manually. And there was this, you know, Tyler Schultz's famous great quote about the, the tiled world and the carpeted world and the carpeted world where executives were and then the tiled world where all the messy reality was happening. Can you have those juxtapositions and be Elizabeth and still not know that you're lying? I think what must happen is that you're able to lie to yourself in the moment, even though if you were to sit down late at night, you would know and recognize that what you had done is just told a lie. But you convince yourself that it's okay because you're doing it for a good cause. But in the moment, you have to believe that you're not telling a lie because otherwise you can't be an effective liar. I mean, that's where the, the really strange experiment that Dan Ariely does comes into play because he does this experiment with the dice. And the idea being that people bet on the roll of the dice and they're allowed to hold back a certain amount of information so that they roll the dice and they get paid. If it's a one, they get $1, six, $6. But they're told you can bet or get paid on either the bottom or the top. But don't tell me, i.e. don't tell the experimenter which one it is. So that's a secret, right? And then they just write it down. Well, over time, statistically, it comes out that when the people report their results, they're cheating. And when they put them on a lie detector test and they're getting the money they almost always fail the lie detector test. But here's the most interesting part. When they do it for a charity, i.e. a higher purpose, they not only cheat more, see, that's where the bad news comes in, yep. but even more bad news, the lie detector can't detect the lie. So, so they must believe that it's okay for them to lie and therefore convince themselves in the moment that they're not lying, even though... Strictly speaking, they know that they are. So the human capacity for rationalization and self-delusion is almost endless. And it really is endless if the human being also believes in that, that their goal is this, is this noble pursuit. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And, and I think also, if you believe that you're right in some fundamental way, then no amount of facts are going to get in, 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 in your way. I mean, you know better than I on the Enron story. You know, I used to imagine like, what was it that Jeff Skilling thought in the middle of the night when they were so hopelessly in debt, there was no way they were ever going to get out of it? But I think he rationalized that like a ball team down by 20 runs in the bottom of the ninth, it was theoretically possible they could score 21 runs in the bottom of the ninth and win. Right. What I find so fascinating about this is that if you're trying to figure out a roadmap for detecting the difference between the visionary and the fraudster, this is leading us in a direction that says, actually, they're, they're even more alike than, than you'd think, because this idea of having this big world-changing goal is what you want a visionary to have, but it's also the hallmark of the fraudster who can get other people to believe. So instead of differentiation, they're sounding more and more similar to me in some I ways. I think they're very similar. And I think the, 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 it's, it's, it's really the whole idea of the end justifies the means, which is not only their own rationalization, but also what we forgive as a society or don't forgive, depending on whether they get to the end zone. So John Kerry Rue, who, who collaborated with you on the film and obviously wrote the great book Bad Blood, yeah. argues that the, there was this moment of knowing fraud when Theranos rolls out these blood tests through Walgreens and you know, suddenly then this is live and people's health is at stake. Do you think that that's a moment of knowing fraud? Or do you think even then she could have still been deceiving herself? I think she was deceiving herself, but I also think she knew that they were administering bad tests. She had heard it from enough people that if she wasn't checking, then there's something That's seriously... almost criminal negligence, right? right. Or, or willful blindness, willful right, as blindness. they call it. And yeah. I think she probably practiced willful blindness. But, but at the end of the day, you know, the responsible thing would have been to have said, okay, well, let's shut down then. Right. Um, but she couldn't shut down because she needed Walgreens on board in order to get more investment, in order to keep the company alive. So she rationalized the behavior. But she certainly knew that the tests were no good. But even in the face of that knowledge, can you still have not knowledge too? In other words, can, can you know but still convince yourself somehow it's, it's okay? I'm just guessing, but based on what I know in terms of the experience of the subjects I've treated and also some of the sciences, scientists that I've spoken to, I would say yes. You can both know that you're lying and also deceive yourself that actually you're not. One of the things I thought about when I was doing this was the example of uh, Lance Armstrong. Yes. And Lance Armstrong, from a practical perspective, would tell you, and certainly did tell his cohorts and ultimately told me that, yes, he doped. But it was terribly important to cancer survivors that he say things like, how dare you say that I, as a cancer survivor, would ever use performance-enhancing drugs? But he would say that with a great deal of conviction, as if he wasn't lying, because he was telling them something so important that was helping him to raise lots of money to cater to their concerns, that... It was okay, even though he would get down off whatever kind of PR platform he was speaking on at that time and maybe go do a bag of blood. So again, it was the noble pursuit. He wasn't. Yes. He was able to say to himself, he wasn't doping on behalf of himself and his own performance. He was doping or not telling the truth about doping in order to do this greater good. In the case of Lance Armstrong, I think he figured, look, being a realist, if I want to win, I'm going to have to dope because everybody else is doping. But 
I can't just say I'm doping because then I won't win. And it's really important to all these cancer survivors that I win because yeah. it gives them hope. And by the way, I'm raising hundreds of millions of dollars for them. So isn't that more important? What do you think about the role of charisma in all of this? Because when we think about Elizabeth Holmes or Jeff Skilling or Lance Armstrong, all extraordinarily charismatic people, what role do you think that plays? It plays a role in convincing others. Do they also turn their charisma on themselves? Well, I think so. And I, I think they end up believing their own bullshit. Uh, that's a critical component. But this goes back to the whole storyteller idea. I think part of being charismatic is putting yourself at the center, just like Edison did, of a drama in which you are the main character. And telling that story in a compelling way is what gives you that charisma so that people want to follow you. You know, if you, if you put lines of code on a piece of paper, you know, you can believe that some people are going to sign up for that. Right. But no, what they're really going to sign up for is a vision, uh, a vision as expressed by a visionary. And Steve Jobs was also one of those characters. So, yeah, charisma is hugely important because it turns out that even high-octane, sophisticated investors end up putting down hundreds of millions of dollars for people who tell compelling stories rather than <laughs> really demonstrate the the value of their product in, in a kind of it's actually refreshing way. in a way that in this increasingly technological world, the power of narrative remains thus it has ever been. And Good for us storytellers, yeah. Right. There's something encouraging about that. So I was thinking about this, uh, the, the role of the believers, right? Because there's the role of the visionary or the fraudster, but then there's also they wouldn't get anywhere if it weren't for the role those of us who are willing to believe play in this. And I love this from Maria Konnikova's book, The Confidence Game. She wrote, when we step into a magic show, we come in actively wanting to be fooled. We want deception to cover our eyes and make our world a tiny bit more fantastical, more awesome than it was before. And the magician in many ways uses the exact same approaches as the confidence man, only without the destruction of the Conan's game. And so what what makes people believe, do you think? Elizabeth Holmes famously raised a billion dollars from really wealthy investors. What makes people like that who should know better? What makes them marks? I think it's hardwired in our psychology. I mean, the fact is that we are not really supremely rational beings. We're guided by snap judgments that we like to make based on our evolutionary history. But it doesn't always serve us well when it comes to analyzing complex problems like whether or not to invest $100 million in a company. But the believers, you know, there's another phrase. It's weird the way, you know, you do projects, and I'm sure you find the same thing, but you do stories and then you they add up in ways that you don't expect. I did a, a film about the Church of Scientology. Of course. And one of the uh, subheads of the book on which the film was based, Lawrence Wright's book, Going Clear, was the prison of belief. And the idea of the prison of belief is a really interesting one. It's a prison really with no bars and no lock, but you're imprisoned because you need to believe. And I think for for people who were believing in Enron for a long time, you know, because nobody could really figure out how they made their money, or the people who believed in Lance Armstrong, or the people who believed in Elizabeth Holmes, once you believe, it becomes very hard to undo that belief. And so much so in the poignantly in the Theranos story. Oh, yes. You know, Tyler Schultz is going to his grandfather and saying, you know, grandpa it's fraud there. And he had become a prisoner of his own belief, so he wouldn't even believe now his own grandson. 
That's it's such a compelling example. And do you think, just as it is for the visionary turned fraudster, for the believers too, the answer is way more complicated than greed, right? As the prison of belief would demonstrate. I think so, because sometimes you see people hanging on even as the company is going <laughs> down. You know, it's like it's going to turn around. And it's the classic, if you think about investment, particularly for the average sucker, like, say, me, you know, I can recall <laughs> investing in a company and it would do really well initially. And that would give me a taste. And then it would start to sink below the original purchase price and sink further and further and further. I'm thinking, yeah, but it was so high once. Surely it's going to go back there against all reason. The prison of belief. Yes, right? the prison of belief. I love that phrase. And do you think, too, that the big lie is more likely to make us suckers than the little lie? In other words, the, maybe because the romanticism that's associated with the big lie or just the fact that once you have the big lie, it's just so inconceivable that that could be a lie. And Elizabeth Holmes, I feel like, is the ultimate example of that. I, I think that's right. And she was going to do it big. And that was part of the vision that I think everybody else invested in. So rather than an incremental change, she had to be a shape shifter. She had to be a paradigm shifter. So that's what all those people were investing in. They were going to hit the Grand Slam home run. It was so much more compelling than making 6% on your money in a ball bearing factory. It's fascinating when you think about all the things that have fooled us in the business world, Bernie Madoff, Enron, even the global financial crisis. It just was inconceivable that that could be a lie, right, that the big banks didn't know what they were doing, that Enron, the celebrated energy company, could actually be a fraud, that Bernie Madoff could be running a Ponzi scheme. And so the big lie is so inconceivable. It's what undergirds everything. And yet you realize when the big lie is uncovered, suddenly what's left is not some sort of elegantly constructed superstructure of equations. It's just pure belief. And when the belief is gone, the whole thing crashes like tulips. Just like the emperor behind the curtain, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> once, once again, what role do you think gender played in the Elizabeth Holmes story specifically, but maybe even Enron in belief and that the skeptic, Phyllis Gardner, at least one of the skeptics, prominently female, Erica Chung too, although not the only one, and the board, all believers, all old white males. I think it did play a huge role. I think particularly for her board and possibly also for David Boyce. I mean, I think that you have these old men who were enchanted by a younger woman. And I think that in some ways, wouldn't it be great if there was a female inventor and entrepreneur who would be a top male-dominated Silicon Valley? So the attraction was married with a rationalization of doing good. Well, then that's fascinating because not only did Elizabeth have the rationalization that she was doing good, but the people who believed in her also felt good about themselves. And so you had the, the double whammy in effect. Indeed. And I think also it was one of the things, in, she's a storyteller, it was one of the things that that actually enabled her to get further with the journalists who were otherwise very skeptical journalists. Ken Oletta and Roger Parloff, Roger Parloff yeah. who put her on the cover of Fortune. You know, I think they both saw a story that would be a really great story. Yeah. Because it's so different. Do I have to write again about how male-dominated is Silicon Valley and how women can't cut a break? Now we've got the counterexample. You'd want to invest in that story. And I think they were invested in that story. 
just turned out not to be true. Yeah, I've, I've said to Roger that if any journalist looks at what happened to him and thinks, oh, that would never happen to me, they're, they're fooling themselves. They are. Because any one of us could have fallen for that in reality. I, I fell for it in the Armstrong lie. I mean, I, I, I came very close to releasing a film that, let's just say, would not have been good for me. Did you really? Yes. That film took five years to make, and one of the reasons it did was right on the eve of about to releasing a film that would have been more of a praise poem, shall we say, all of the all the real stories started tumbling out. Wow. Isn't that interesting that we all have that capacity? And I've, I've absolutely been there, too. What do you think it is? Because now you've covered these stories also from Enron to Theranos, where, where there are whistleblowers. What's the quality of the person who doesn't believe when the rest of us do? That's a really good question. And it also makes me think about the Enron example, because I remember going out on the stump for the Enron film and always being asked two questions, one about this fraudster Lou Pai, who got away with it, but also one about the whistleblower, Sharon Watkins. And there was a tremendous amount of resentment toward her, as if to say, who does she think she is? Because whistleblowers show us up. Yes. And that means <laughs> that there's something about the whistleblower that doesn't go along. And I think that has to be recognized. I think in the case of Theranos, you know, two of the whistleblowers were very young. And so they weren't as compromised by the need for a salary, a pension, whatever. But also, I think we're a little bit more shocked at the disparity between the bullshit and the reality. Whereas if you've been around in the workplace for a while, you see it more often. And, and they were coming in from the outside. I mean, I think Sharon Watkins, the interesting thing at Enron was that she left Andy Fastow's department, the CFO at Enron, and then came back. And when she came back, she realized how far things had gone. Because she had been outside for long she enough been to outside. see that inside yes. was, it's as if it, you're too immersed in something. You and can't. so it's being taken outside of that prison of belief or not being in that prison for long enough that really allows you to be there. But it, 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 it takes a, a huge amount of strength and inner strength. That's what so impressed me about Erica Chung and, and Tyler Schultz in the Theranos story. They were young. And all these experts are telling them, no, you're wrong. Senior figures who also happen to be their, in one case, their grandfather, who is the former secretary of state, saying, no, you're wrong. But they stuck to their guns. I think back to Enron and Jeff Skilling and the emperor's new clothes. And it's the child who sees and is willing to say it's... With Jeff Skilling, it was intellectual intimidation, right? Everybody was so afraid to say, I don't get it, when everybody else clearly did. And here you had younger kids who were willing to say, no, actually, I I, I really don't get it. And so maybe there's that necessary component of being an outsider somehow who doesn't have as much to lose, who isn't as invested in the system as it is. That is a necessary quality for the whistleblower. Hugely. And sometimes a, a certain amount of discontent. Because if you're, if you're contented, you're more apt to go along. And I think we have to understand, too, that there's a tremendous social and I think probably interior psychological pressure for all of us to go along. Absolutely. You know, I think that was one of the lessons of the Milgram experiment and some of the other psychological experiments done. Within a certain context, it's very hard to break free, whether we call it the prison of belief or, or a sense of, of going along with others and say, no, 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 this is not right. I'm telling you it's not right. Even in the face of people who use that bluff, which makes you extremely insecure. 
Come back to that quality because that's something Jeff Skilling certainly had. I used to call it intellectual intimidation, right? The ability to make other people feel like their intellect was just smaller than his so you could put your trust in his. Did Elizabeth have that too? She did. And Tyler would speak to that. She had both the carrot and the stick. He talked about the difference between the tiled world and the carpeted world. And he would be in the tiled world convinced that everything was terrible, nothing worked. And then he'd go up and speak to Elizabeth. And after 15 minutes talking to her, she'd be so compelling and so confident that he'd go back down and on the, on the stairs down to the tiled world, you think, yeah, it's great. I'm, I'm part of a mission. I'm going to change the world. Until he got back to the tiled world, he thought, oh, my God, what happened? So there's that charisma that you talked about. But I think in the Theranos story, the, the flip side, that kind of intimidation, is the way that Elizabeth used David Boyce. Yes. Because if anybody started to sound like they were going to go public with things that were wrong at Theranos, David Boyce was using the power of the legal system and the NDAs that some of these people had signed to threaten them with financial ruin Ruin. if they breathed a word. You know, a lot of companies do that, and they use the NDA in a way to rudder against the occasional ethical qualms that people may have. Is that one way, do you think, that you might be able to tell the difference between the visionary and the fraudster or be able to tell when the visionary has tipped over the line into fraud is the level of retaliation against those who differ from the party line? There's an interesting lesson here from Steve Jobs, even though he would famously retaliate to the end of his days against journalists who wrote negative stories. Um, Maybe my distinction isn't so good after all. (laughs) (laughs) No, but but I I would say this. There's an aspect aspect of Jobs that did learn that lesson inside his company, because after the, you know, he got he got tossed out of Apple and then the disastrous experience at Next, he surrounded himself with a small group of people at Apple 2.0 who were not only willing to tell him no to his face, but whom he also rewarded for doing just that. Mm-hmm. So I think Steve learned on the job. So maybe that's a way to prospectively tell the difference between the visionary and the fraudster. Maybe the visionary you can trust is someone who has failed before, because maybe they're going to be able to recognize the signs and know themselves when they need to stop believing. The head of Toyota used to say, mistakes are precious. And now that's a visionary you want to believe in, because he's not pretending that mistakes don't exist in his just-in-time automated system. He's seeking them out because he knows it it makes him better. And willing to acknowledge when belief isn't enough, right? So another moment I've thought about it, Theranos, that is fascinating is this moment where they all, where I guess a John Carreyrou piece has come out and they all chant, fuck you, Carreyrou. And so if, (laughs) if the character of the whistleblower is really interesting, what about all the people who are inside who aren't whistleblowers? And I guess it goes back to what we were talking about, just the, the prison of belief. But but still, I mean, that the whistleblower is so rare and and so many other people who could have seen what they did didn't blow the whistle. How do you how do you think about that? It is really hard to think about, and it also teaches you what a powerful force it is, this idea of being on a mission and how that can be so badly abused. Because on the one hand, you do want to believe in a mission. That is what motivates people. But in that moment, when Carrie Rue's article came out, that's how she rallied the troops, or that's how Sonny rallied the troops, to say, fuck you, uh, to, sh- ah. to, to scream, fuck you, in unison— not only at Carreyrou, but also at the the other labs. But, 
it's hard to reckon with the idea that you would see this devastating article in the Wall Street Journal and not engage in some doubt. Right. And that, I think, is the larger beginning of a lesson in these stories about fraudsters, is that when you believe too much, when you want it too much, things can get very dangerous very quickly. And that proves in a way that the visionary can also be unwilling to admit to themselves because we all are unwilling to admit to ourselves in the face of clear evidence. And so you can see it there, right? Yes. A really important aspect of these fraud stories is I think there is a tendency to want to look at the fraudsters and say, I am good and they are bad, without understanding that we are all hardwired to be susceptible either to tell lies or to believe in lies because it's a human nature. And so some people are more extreme in terms of, you know, where they are on the spectrum, shall we say, of fraud. But I think the idea of exceptionalizing Elizabeth Holmes or Jeff Skilling or Steve Jobs makes a terrible mistake because then it just means like, well, the way to stop fraud is to pick out those few fraudsters and make sure that we remove them from the system. But there are little bits of fraud that all of us commit every day. That's why, you know, a system of checks and balances is more useful because we all know or we should be able to accept that we all commit fraud. And back to your earlier point, if we were to X out the possibility for those fraudsters would also be Xing out the possibilities for those real visionaries, right? Correct. Because you you need that human capacity for belief and the idea that's going to transform the world or the world would never go anywhere. That's right. A lot of these things that we're talking about that are negatives in terms of aspects of our minds, which allow us to believe in fraud or allow us to commit fraud, there are many ways in which those things are hugely useful and powerful. So it's all about how we reckon with that. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was really fun. Thanks, Bethany. Great pleasure. I think a lot about this great F. Scott Fitzgerald quote. The true mark of genius is to be able to hold two competing thoughts in your mind at the same time and not go crazy. Maybe the difference between the visionary and the fraudster is the difference between the person who can do that and the person who can't. I can't fail. I might fail. There is no try, as Yoda says. You can learn from try. Maybe that's the difference for all of us, too. Maybe we have to be willing to believe in the person with a dream who wants to transform the world. Or the world won't move. But we also have to be willing to believe that the big dream could become the big lie. So maybe the responsibility to be F. Scott Fitzgerald's genius is actually a responsibility that belongs to all of us. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes. My executive producers are Allison McLean, no relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Gambrell. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. 
This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 